Good morning, everybody. This is Chris Robertson, VP of Air Freight, Surface Transportation, and Shipping at Deutsche Bank. And I'd like to welcome you to Capital Link's Shipping Sectors webinar series. In this series, we have the opportunity to delve into the latest trends, challenges, and opportunities shaping the shipping sector. Today's webinar is on the container shipping market. We have with us today, Mr. Evangelos Hatsis, CFO at Danaus Corporation, Dr. Anastasios Aslides, CFO of Eurocis, Mr. Thomas Lister, CCO and head of ESG at Global Ship Lease, and Mr. Konstantin Bach, CEO of MPC Container Ships at ASA. The opening slide contains information as to where each company is listed and the ticker symbols. The webinar will consist of a roundtable discussion with the moderator and the panelists. It will last for a total of one hour with 45 minutes allotted to the panel discussion, followed by 15 minutes Q&A. Participants can submit their questions to the Q&A button on the screen during the webinar. Your, answers, your questions will be answered during the Q&A session. Please note that Capital Link will be conducting three poll questions at the end of the discussion that will strictly be used for informational and educational purposes. We would appreciate your participation in answering these poll questions. Before we begin our goal, please note that this discussion is strictly for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon. The webinar does not constitute any offer to buy or sell securities or investment advice or advice of any kind, and Capital Link bears no responsibility for the content. In terms of further disclosure, Capital Link is the investor relations advisor to some of the companies participating in the webinar today. And at Deutsche Bank, I cover some of the listed shipping companies included in today's webinar. Now let's begin our discussion. Guys, let's, let's start at a very high level here and break things down so that the audience really understands both the general shipping industry as well as how each of your respective companies fit into the bigger picture. So if we could, let's start with Evangelos. Evangelos, could you talk about the container shipping industry as a whole, you know, notwithstanding the fact that some liners are also owners, can you talk about the key difference between a container liner and operator versus a container owner like Denaus? Has the industry always been bifurcated along these lines or is this more of a recent phenomenon? Thank you, Chris, and uh, good morning to everyone and to my fellow panelists. Um, the container industry is the industry that moves the world, is the industry that moves trade. Uh, consumer goods, semi-finished goods, all sorts of things get packaged into containers, and, and, and that's how uh, trade happens. And people sometimes who are not involved in this industry as we are um, uh, do not clearly uh, you know, have this in their sites. So it's a pretty important industry. The liners, our customers, are the companies that uh, source the cargo uh, and arrange for its uh, transportation. Uh, so it connects the producers with the consumers. Um, goods are loaded on boxes and they're carried on board ships. Uh, we don't do that. Right? We provide the vessels. We are operating lessors uh, of vessels. As you rightly said, liners own uh, certain ships themselves and other vessels they charter in from companies like ours. Um, the, the global average of uh, liner companies' ownership versus chartering in tonnage has historically been around 50%. Um, 50% owned, 50% chartered in. Uh, this percentage is changed over time and other companies have um, higher operating leverage with chartering in more ships. For example, Zim 
is one end of the spectrum where they charter in all of their tonnage and other companies uh, want to own more. Um, the way it usually works on average is that liners want to own the big strategic assets, uh, which are vessels uh, of, uh, let's say, 15,000 to you and upwards. And they typically charter in tonnage below that uh, size range. Um, and uh, from, from companies like uh, uh, ourselves. Um, so this is sort of the, the big picture, if that's what you're looking for in terms of what the industry does and where we fit in that industry. Yeah, that's great. Thomas, uh, can you give some context to the listeners of this webinar as uh, from the size and scope of this market, how many container ships are actually on the water today? What are the key differentiators between ships, different segments? And how do these differences come into play with regards to where and how they operate? Sure, happy to, Chris. And um, hello, everyone. Um, just to add to what um, Evangelos has just said, actually, uh, while we as owners provide the ships to the, uh, the liner operators themselves, it is the liner operators who pay for the fuel. Uh, this may come up later in the conversation, but just as a, a sort of contextual point. So um, some data as requested by, by Chris. So roughly 80%, 80% of manufactured and semi-manufactured goods um, moved around the world are carried by container ships. And that collectively amounts to roughly 200 million TU, a TU being a 20 foot container carried uh, on a yearly basis. Now to carry uh, those 200 million TUs, there are roughly 5,900 uh, container ships on the water today of which um, a little under half, as Evangelos said, are chartered in by the liner operators from people like us, from, from owners like us. Um, and I would say that the market is, is broadly bifurcated into the big ships. Now, Evangelos mentioned 15,000 TU and up as, as being sort of one division point. Uh, we, we tend to delineate between roughly 10,000 TU and up and roughly 10,000 TU and down. And I think, um, broadly speaking, all of the people on the panel today tend to be focused on the mid-size and smaller container ships. So roughly 10,000 TU and down. And um, as Evangelos also said, the, the, the big ships that collectively represent roughly 45% of capacity on the water today uh, tend to be viewed as strategic assets by the liner operators, and they tend to be constrained operationally to the big east-west arterial trades, so Asia to Europe, Asia um, across the Trans-Pacific, and to a lesser extent, the transatlantic. Meantime, the mid-size and smaller ships, the ones that we're collectively focused upon today, um, tend to be focused upon the intermediate, the regional and north-south trades, which collectively represent roughly 70%, 70% of global containerized trade volume. So our ships represent the liquid charter market, and they also tend to serve the trades which, in aggregate, service roughly 70% of global containerized trade. Yeah, that's, that's great, Thomas. Thank you for that. Yeah, Evangelos and Thomas, you did a, did a good job setting up the size and scope of the market here and, and laying it out for our listeners. Um, Tassos, could you talk about, you know, given the size of the, of the total market here, can you talk about the fragmentation in the market in terms of how many owners are there out there? What percentage of the fleet is in private hands versus publicly listed companies' hands? 
and who has the greatest influence over issues related to fleet capacity and supply? Thank you, Chris. Good morning to everybody from me. Thanks, Capital Inc., for inviting us and organizing the webinar. Indeed, the, the, the container ship market is not as fragmented as the bulk or tanker markets. Um, as my colleagues mentioned, there's a, about 27.4 million TU of fleet around. Of that, about 60% is owned by owner operators and 40% by charter owners. In, this, in both categories, there is high concentration. The top 10% of uh, charter owners own 20% of the fleet, and the top 30, 37% of the fleet. So of the 40%, the top 30 own 37. So it's uh, very concentrated in, in 30 uh, charter owners. On the, on the owner operators, almost the entire amount, 55% of the 60%, is owned by, uh, by owner operators. Uh, regarding the public versus private split, I guess most a good number of the owner operators are public. On the charter owner sides, side, uh, where most all four of us uh, are, are active, I did a quick count. I think I estimate about 15 to 20 percent of the fleet belongs to public companies. It would have been close to 35 to 40 percent when CISPAN was public. Now that CISPAN became, uh, uh, became private, uh, that was cut in half. CISPAN was the, the largest um, charter owner uh, amongst ourselves. Uh, naturally, uh, the biggest weight on, uh, on supply and ordering stays is with the owner operators. They place the bigger orders both in size and in both in size of ships and in, in the number of ships, and they set the tone of the market. Uh, we as charter owners, um, we sort of try to respond to the needs of the owner operators um, and uh, to some extent follow that, that trend. I hope that gives a, a broad overview of you know, how the players play in the field. Thank you, Tasso. See, yeah, I'm sure we'll return to the topic of liners in a bit. Um, Constantine, let's let's turn it over to you. Um, can you talk about some of the biggest drivers within the container shipping industry? In other words, if I'm a generalist investor or someone who doesn't know much about the space and I want to start following your company or companies here, what economic issues, trade issues, geopolitical factors, or what other things should I be looking at to better understand the industry as a whole and, and how to follow a particular stock? Thanks, Chris. Um, good morning from my side as well. Um, I mean, like like many other industries, uh, key industry driver in container shipping is is demand and supply in a way. So, looking at the demand side of things, the most important driver is the growth of economic activity. Um, an expansion of, for example, global global production goes goes hand in hand with an increase of demand for for transportation um, um, of both inputs as well as outputs in a way. So. Going forward, um, I mean, or historically, let's say historically, people have said, you know, there's always a multiplier on uh, GDP growth, uh, the driver behind growth of containerized volumes being transported globally. And there was in the past some sometime somewhere between two and three times um, uh, GDP. Uh, I would argue that is a, a relation of the past. So, so we expect currently a ratio of more 0.8 to 1.2% 
um, of container demand growth for every percent of additional economic output on a on a global level. So I think this is a very important input factor when understanding the the drivers behind the demand side of things. Um, so that is the most important factor when looking at uh, demand drivers. Now looking at the supply side of things, for tonnage providers. Um, one should look at the operating capacity to transport containerized goods. Most easily measured, obviously, by TEU capacity, i.e. how much TEU uh, has the global fleet on the water. Um, and secondly, and very importantly, um, capacity on order, um, i.e. new building order book. Um, those are kind of uh, the key uh, figures for the supply side. Now, obviously, the supply side, uh, just as the demand side, might get affected by disruptive events. And, and of those, we have seen quite a few over the last couple of years um, um, and, and actually affecting potentially both sides of the equation. Um, for example, the COVID pandemic um, affecting, you know, the demand side in a way of, of you know, lockdowns, et cetera, basically a standstill of certain um, transportation and, and, and lockdown of ports, et cetera. And then a significant catch-up effect uh, when it comes to consumption for home office, et cetera, right? So there was a, a there's always disruption um, playing a significant role on both the demand and supply side. The same is obviously the, um, the situation of geopolitical turmoil or, or, or tension that also affects uh, so-called uh, ton mile demand, meaning, you know, vessels deviating from course, new um, trading patterns being established, et cetera. So that's also important. Um, and then, you know, finally, when looking at the supply side, there's obviously next to the vessels on the water and the capacity on order, there's also an outphasing of ships, i.e. recycling of ships. Um, the, the fleet on the water today has an average age of 15 to 16 years. You usually calculate with an average economic useful life of 25 years. Sometimes it's low 20s, sometimes it's above 30 years, but on, a, on an average, that means you know there's replacement need um, because that 15 to 16 year is an average figure, um, and and there is obviously a difference between you know different sizes, different age brackets, etc. Um, and then finally, but certainly worth highlighting, other aspects to consider are economic considerations. For example, to go slower, to consume less fuel, that means you know more capacity is kept in services, etc. Um, because, you know, liner operators do so in order to reduce their fuel costs. And lastly, and very importantly today, and also going forward, regulation. Um, regulation, uh, like uh, CII regulation, we might touch on that later on in the discussion, uh, potentially, um, which are aimed at reducing emissions, are also affecting the utilization of the trading capacity, um, and hence have an effect on the supply side, not in nominal terms, but in actual trading capacity terms. So again, to, to sum that up, it's, it's again, demand and supply like in many other industries, and the demand side is ma mainly linked to GDP growth and a certain relation um, as far as transportation of containerized goods is concerned. And the supply side is, is mainly linked to the fleet on the water with a few caveats, as I've mentioned before. On that note, back to you, uh, Chris. I'm sure you have more questions for us. Thank you, Constantine. Yeah, that was a good landscape of questions. I, I think we'll get into many of those topics uh, in the in the coming discussion here. But before we get into those, um, now that we've kind of laid the foundation of the broader industry, let's circle back and talk about your respective companies and how they fit into this picture. Um, Constantine, let's start with you and work our way backwards to Evangelos. Um, can you briefly talk about your fleet in terms of the size of the fleet? the segments in which you operate, your chartering strategy, 
um, where the ships are typically deployed and what types of routes they typically serve? Sure. I mean, we at, at MPC Container Ships, we focus on vessels between 1 and, and 6,000 TU, uh, which are basically the most flexible vessels. Uh, um, if you look at the, the container space, we own around 70 ships in that size segment, which makes us the, the largest tonnage provider with, a, with this distinct uh, focus. Um, our business segment are the intra-regional trades. That means intra-Asian, intra-Europe, intra-South America, Caribs, etc. Um, and those trades follow a slightly different dynamics than the large mainland trades. Um, I think Evangelos and, and, and also Tom mentioned that earlier that, you know, there's different focus from liner companies versus tonnage providers on different sizes. So the mainland trades are basically the vessels above 13,000 uh, TU, and they follow a slightly different dy dynamics. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, a few facts on the trades that where we operate, I mean, in terms of number of vessels, around 50% of all container vessels are deployed in intra-regional trades, so where we are operating, and 98% uh, of all the container vessels deployed in those trades are actually below 5,000 TU. So there is a very you know, distinct um, pool of vessels uh, dedicated for these kind of trades, and um, Globally, in terms of number of vessels, the intra-regional trades are by far the most relevant trades. Obviously, when you look at capacity and TU traded, the mainland trades are very, very, very important for the liner operators. Um, but the arteries of, let's say, the service offering um, are actually you know, 50% of, of all vessels. Looking ahead and then also chartering strategy, as you mentioned, in, in our segment, charters are generally sh more, more short-term. I mean, we're talking three to six, six to 12 months uh, periods. We have over the last couple of years been able to also opt for, for longer charters, uh, three, sometimes four years of period. Um, and we with our fleet tend to, to focus on a more staggered charter book, i.e. not trying to have all ships open at the same time um, and deploy them in, in those routes with the key customers, which is the main liner companies, but to some extent, also some of the, the regional um, operators. I think the the interesting part when looking at, at those trades is the, in our view, favorable demand and supply dynamics um, on intra-regional trades um, in comparison to the overall market. We, we have, if we, we look at the order book, we, we, we expect, and the, and the recycling potential, we expect, expect a, a net fleet growth of around, you know, minus 1% from a CAGA standpoint, 2022 to 2026, below 5,000 TU, meaning, the age profile of the fleet versus the order book is, is actually pretty much in sync or actually a bit underrepresented versus 5% plus growth, uh, net fleet growth in the overall market. Um, and also from a trade development, um, if you look historically the last 10 years, with a few exceptions, intra-regional trades have always grown disproportionately stronger than the mainland trades, around 4.5%. Um, versus roughly three and a half to four percent for the mainland trade. So, so there are distinct differences between those trades, and that's why we have a very um, also uh, intentional and and distinct focus on on those trades. But I'll leave the floor for the others to comment, um, and I'm sure we'll touch on on more intricacies of those trades as we go through. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Thank you, Constantine. Uh, Tassos, let's turn it over to you. Yes, thank you. Um, we also operate in the same uh, size segments that uh, Constantine mentioned. We our ships range from uh, 1500 to 6500 TU. The majority of our fleet is focused on what we call feeder, the, the pure feeder uh, segments between uh, 1500 and uh, 3500. We have 13 ships in that category out of the 19 ships that we have um, 
Uh, we have 11 ships in that category out of the 19 ships that we have in the water. We have uh, six Panamax vessels and two larger uh, vessels. In addition, we have uh, we have embarked uh, in a, in a, into a new building program. We ordered nine ships over the last couple of years. Two of those have been delivered, so we have seven more uh, new buildings to take delivery of. Those are again in the feeder area. Three are 1,804 remaining, 2,800, two of 2,800 we have taken delivery of. And these ships are the most modern ships one could build with today's knowledge and technology. They support, they, they burn 35 to 40% less fuel per day from their, um, from the peers, from the other ships of similar, of similar uh, size. Uh, we operate them primarily regional trades, pretty much all over the world. Um, we have been able, typically this uh, these ships, feeders get short-term charters, used to get short-term charters. During the pandemic, the market opened up and we were able to book for longer term. So we have a pretty good coverage for 2024. We have, with all the new buildings coming in, which are not chartered at this point, but taking into account all of those, we are almost 70% covered in 2024 at rates near $30,000 a day. And uh, we are we're even 25 percent cover in 2025. So despite the, as we'll talk, I presume the relatively softer market now, we feel pretty good in terms of the uh, next couple of years uh, in terms of coverage. I'll stop here, and I'm sure we can return to some of these topics. Thank you, Tassos. Uh, Tom, over to you. Great, thanks, Chris. I'll I'll try not to to cover the same uh, ground as as the other guys. So. Global ship lease, um, we have a fleet of 68 ships. They range in size from roughly 2,000 TU at the bottom end up to 11,000 TU at the top end. Um, they're super flexible operationally, which is reassuring in uncertain times, such as the, the times we're facing at the moment from a macro level. Um, we see them as, as fitting nicely into what we see as an evolving trend towards what I've heard analysts refer to as the China plus one uh, supply chain risk management strategy. In other words, um, with a lot of manufacturers diversifying their manufacturing base away from China and into uh, to other, particularly Southeast Asian uh, countries, Indonesia, Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera. And so we see the 2,000 to 11,000 TU category as, as fitting very nicely into that strategy and feeding that strategy. Um, we have um, contracted revenues of 1.8 billion um, US and an average remaining charter term of 2.1 years. Um, we have all, well, unsurprisingly, I guess, all of our 2023 open positions covered and a little over 80% of our 2024 positions covered. Um, we're very much focused upon trying to support forward cash flow visibility. So, wherever possible and wherever economically it makes sense, we aim at. Uh, longer-term charters where we can get them. Um, all told, um, we were listed on, on the New York Stock Exchange under ticker uh, GSL, as you can see from the screen. Um, we have a market cap of roughly 650 million, and um, our, our business model is designed to service a sustainable dividend, which at the moment is $1.50 annualized, which translates into roughly an 8% dividend yield. With that, I'll pass the, the word back to you, Chris. 
Great. Thank you, Tom. And uh, finally, Evangelos. Yes. So we, I mean, this company has been around for quite some time. Last year, we celebrated uh, our 50-year anniversary. So this company has been around pretty much ever since and has grown together with containerization, if you will. So we have built and acquired vessels as the industry was, was growing. Uh, and as the industry was growing um, in multiples of GDP growth, as Constantine mentioned before, uh, because of containerization becoming more and more relevant, vessel sizes also grew uh, with the geometric progression. So we have vessels um, from 2200 TU up to 13,000 TU. Uh, these ships, they service all the trades that were mentioned before uh, on this call. Um, we, uh, we have a, a contract backlog of two and a half billion, which translates to roughly 1.9 billion of, of EBITDA uh, with an average charter duration of, of three years. Um, we have 10 vessels on order. Uh, six of them are 8,000 AU. Uh, uh, two of them are 7,000 AU and another two are 6,000 AU, all being built methanol ready, scrubber fitted, uh, and with the latest technology as, re as it relates to emissions and all these things, um, which is quite an important point, and we may touch upon it going forward. Uh, which is how you modernize your fleet. Because it's one thing, what you have today and what your backlog is. Uh, and it's another thing, how competitive you will be able to be the day after. And uh, so we we aspire uh, to be at the, at the forefront of uh, innovation and, and, and fleet renewal to service the needs of our customers, because that's what we're here to do. And... Um, um, Investing in, in, in new technologies is going to be uh, very important, especially for companies like ours. Uh, with uh, I mean, we, we've been through a few years where we really, we've really tidied up our balance sheet. Um, we, at this point, together with the almost 2 billion EBITDA backlog, we are practically net debt free at this point. So we have... Uh, all the degrees of freedom we want to manage uh, the capital structure um, and importantly manage uh, fleet renewal in the coming years in conjunction with, of course, technologies developing and regulations and all these things. Thank you, Evangelist. Yeah, I'm glad that you guys brought up the, uh, the topic of charter duration and backlog here. So my next set of questions is centered on that. So I think for investors and outside observers that are maybe more familiar with the tanker and bulker segments of the market, they kind of understand more uh, prompt delivery rates or what's known as spot rates. Um, but many of the, the companies in this segment, with maybe some exceptions, you know, you generally prefer to keep operational spot exposure pretty low um, and, and take advantage of multi-month or at least multi-year charters when you can do that. Um, and you have these time charter rates ab above your total cash break even levels. Um, your segment is is very different in this regard uh, compared to other segments that you're not really living or dying by the the spot rate cycle. And instead of it's it's more of a long term focus. Um, so let's on that topic. Can you can you talk about Evangelist? Let's start back with you on the topic of the liners. Um, what's your overall impression 
at the moment of their balance sheet strength at this point in the freight cycle. And we sometimes hear a criticism around contract renegotiation risk. So as it relates to the topic of charter coverage in the next year or two, um, do you have any worry about contract renegotiation risk? Is this fear valid? Why or why not? Well, we're 90%, 90% covered for next year and 60, 60% covered for 25. Um, so yes, I mean, our business model is one of uh, cash flow visibility, right? It's not subject to the spot rate fluctuations, as you mentioned, because some people confuse that and think that because, for example, the top line of the liners has taken a dip that so should our top line. And this is not the case exactly because of the long-term nature or the medium-term nature of, of our contracts. They used to be longer a few years back. Um, so in terms of, and I want to be very clear on contract renegs and concerns around contract reneg. I've been in this industry for more than two decades now. There's never been a reneg. This is this is not uh, without exception, right? So it's not that people will come to you and ask you to reduce the rate just because the market is not so good as it was last year, right? Yes, you may have liners struggling on the verge of restructuring, going bankrupt, reorganizing and all these things. And yes, we've been hit by such situations such as Hanjin or Zim that actually turned out to be uh, a good investment at the end of the day. Uh, but um, liners are, and people should understand this, they are uh, companies with real assets, with real businesses, investments in port infrastructure and so on and so forth. They service the logistical chain of the world. They cannot just uh, renege uh, out of a contract just because the market is not good, right? A contract is a contract and people stick to it. Point number one. Point number two is that these companies have come out of a super cycle situation with uh, COVID uh, where they've managed to pay down all of their debts they have a few billion in the bank as we speak today. And yes, their income statements are struggling right now because the market has, has dropped. Uh, box rates have dropped. Uh, and some of them uh, are still above, uh, slightly above break even. Some of them are recording already uh, significant losses, but they have a lot of um, cushion, if you will, um, to absorb any such uh, cash flow difficulties. So we don't expect these companies to actually be in distress anytime soon. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, the issue that this industry is facing right now is not a supply side issue, it's a demand side issue, right? The supply side with the slow steaming that has occurred and will continue to occur with scrapping, which will eventually accelerate um, for the for the older tonnage, um, we'll, we'll find a balance. It's, it's a matter of demand growth. And it's a matter of world GDP growth because as Constantine mentioned before, we expect a multiple of around one uh, in terms of container trade growth versus world GDP growth. And uh, the, the sooner the, the world economy 
uh, starts doing better, the sooner this industry will recover. Great. Let me let me open up this question to to everybody. Uh, respond how how you'd like, uh, Evangelist. You brought up the COVID cycle. Um, where do you think we're at right now in terms of charter rates as we're coming off of this this COVID period? Um, have rates normalized at this point, or are we still trying to catch a falling dagger here? I think if I can take that question, I think uh, rates obviously have come down significantly from their peaks uh, in 2022. Um, they are still above, I believe, the average uh, rates that we saw in 2019. Um, I don't share so much the opinion offered by Evangelos that it's a demand problem only. It's always both sides of the equation that affect where the rates will go. We have to absorb quite an amount of deliveries uh, in 2024 and to some extent 2025. And the reason that there were pretty high deliveries this year in the second half of it is uh, why rates have come down um, significantly. I think we should be happy that uh, even the today's rates are better than the rates that we had before COVID. Uh, but the industry still has a challenge to deal with to absorb the capacity that is coming uh, out of the yards over the next uh, couple of years. Yeah, let, let me ask on that. Um, so as it relates to the tanker and bulker segments, we often hear from, from publicly listed owners that there's still too much regulatory and technological uncertainty around fuel and propulsion technology. This is putting downward pressure on new building ordering. And yet in the container segment, we did see a large increase in new build orders placed, especially over the, the pandemic period. Uh, when freight rates were very high and charter rates were responding accordingly. So let me just ask, what drove this ordering boom during the pandemic? Um, in my mind, it was fairly obvious that this type of freight cycle would be fairly short-lived. Uh, you know, Certain short-term uh, demand drivers for consumer goods as they stayed home, repaired their homes, bought uh, televisions and other entertainment equipment, et cetera. Um, so why was this level, the level of ordering so high? Do you, do you think it was appropriate or was it overdone? Well, maybe maybe I can I can jump in on that. Um, I mean, first of all, one simple question is cash, um, um, quite simply and and literally cash. Um, and 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 that is, you know, most of the liner companies who have ordered had the capacity to order. Um, that is that is one significant driver. And 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 you mentioned the comparison to to dry and to tankers, and that there is always the technology argument brought forward. I think if you look at the order book. Um, and the audible composition, you will see that most of the orders are actually above 10,000 to you, right? The, the vast majority are the very large ships where the liners have a, a slot cost calculation where they also need to be competitive on the mainland trades. Um, to a lesser extent, these orders have been in the smaller sizes where, where we have the flexible part of the service offering for the liner companies and where actually everyone on this panel is, is, is involved. So I wouldn't say, you know, everything above 10,000 TU is, 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 is an overcapacity and everything below is, is, is underbuilt. But I think the uh, one really has to look at the details of the order book, the details of the age structure of the vessels. Uh, you know, the, the smaller sizes are also on average comparably older than uh, the larger sizes where you have uh, very, very modern vessels. So I, I actually I actually think, yes, there has been a significant order, uh, order, order spree over the last uh, years. Um, the order book is sizable. Um, having said that, the pressure on also recycling has never been bigger almost because you have a 
you know, new regulation hitting the market, aging fleets, um, and especially on the smaller sizes, you also have more pressure from a regulatory standpoint because simply the new regulation um, affects the, the smaller sizes more in terms of having to slow down, having to make adjustments, et cetera. So what we actually see is, is on the smaller sizes, a more dynamic exchange with our customers, the line of operators also on retrofits. We are going to retrofit um, roughly you know, 15 vessels out of our fleet uh, next year, hand in glove with uh, our liner partners against charter extensions, meaning forward extensions and participation in CapEx. So I think that means, you know, talking about order book, that you know, rather than having a big ordering spree in the smaller sizes, there's more a, a, I wouldn't say partnership approach, but more a collaborative approach when it comes to improving the emissions the fuel consumption, et cetera, also on the smaller sizes in anticipation of a hopefully clearer picture on what to order, especially on the more flexible trades, because you don't have the fuel certainty like you have on the mainland trades where you know, you know, I bunker my vessel in, in Singapore and in Rotterdam, so I can easily, you know, or more easy at least answer the fuel question. That's almost impossible on, on you know, our smaller vessels that go to remote places on this globe where there's no such infrastructure in place and not in place in the foreseeable future. So I, to, to as, a, as a kind of sum up to your question, Question. Yes, there have been a lot of orders. They have been geared very much too much the towards the large ships. I think on the smaller sizes, we will have to see more orders um, because of the age structure. But in the interim, we will see more and more vessel, um, let's say, enhancement technology being retrofitted on those vessels. And that is going to be hand in hand with our chartering partners. Thank you, Constantine. Yeah, Chris, can I, can I just jump in to, to complement what, um, particularly what Constantine was saying? So I'll, I'll throw some, some data around some of the qualitative points that, that Constantine was making. First of all, I echo his thoughts 100%. So if you look at what was happening to the order book immediately before COVID, the order book to fleet ratio was roughly 9%, which is totally insufficient, really, for the renewal of a fleet, which is made up of intrinsically wasting assets. So as Constantine, I think, mentioned in his opening remarks, container ships have an economic life of, you know, broadly 25 years, sometimes 30, sometimes a little less than 25. In any case, they must be replaced uh, in order to keep trade moving. So if I provide some, some data, the overall um, order book to fleet ratio is 29%. However, um, that is disproportionately weighted to the very big ships. So if you look at the sub 10,000 TU ships on which the lion's share of us are, are, are focused, the order book to fleet ratio is 14%, 1,4%. And that's with deliveries that stretch right the way through until 2027. Now, even more interesting, at least in my mind, is to, to, to Constantine's point that you have to look not only at the order book, you also have to look at the age of the existing fleet. And because of um, really chronic underinvestment in the midsize and smaller ships um, during the challenging years leading up to the, you know, the COVID spike that we saw in earnings, the midsize and smaller order book is, is very old. So if you were to perform an exercise whereby you net out from the fleet all the ships that hit their 25-year special survey, um, and you net that out from the order book, you only see net growth of 1.2% in the sub-10,000 TU fleet through to 2027, which is minimal. And I would say, if anything, too little. 
Um, on the, the fuel and propulsion point, um, we're rather cautious on that front, um, probably more cautious than, than many of our peers. We prefer to take a, a, a sort of an active wait and see approach to see where the chips are going to be placed by the liner companies on the fuels of the future. You know, it could be methanol. That's certainly uh, a fuel that's, that's growing in popularity. Ammonia is talked about. Um, nuclear is even now uh, being, being talked about. And because as owners of ships, we can control the crewing of the ship, but we cannot control the fueling of the ship. That's the responsibility of the charterer. Nor can we control the geographic deployment of the ship, nor can we control the time for which a ship is deployed on a particular trade lane. It feels like a very big bet to us to try to decide whether um, to put our bet on, on any one of this multitude of fuels. We'd rather sit and wait. And in the meantime, rather like MPC, it sounds, work with our charterers to enhance the operating efficiency of the existing ships um, by retrofitting them with um, physical enhancements, which can you know, drive improvements of 15 to 20% in efficiency, meaning reductions in fuel consumption of 15 to 20% and also install um, live performance management systems on the ships so that we can get high frequency data from those ships. And as a result, we hope in conjunction with the liner operators, optimize the operation of those ships to once again, improve their efficiency. So there's a lot that can be done, particularly with a, a, an aging peer group of ships to improve operational efficiencies and reduce emissions without we think having to take a bet yet on, uh, on, on which fuel is going to be the, the, the winner or the winners in the future. Great. Um, guys, on, on the topic of kind of investing over the long run, which some of these technological issues and fleet renewal uh, is involved, let, let's talk about how investors should think about returns in this industry. Um, obviously, cash distributions or quarterly dividends come to mind in terms of capital return. But share repurchases are becoming more popular, particularly in other segments um, like tankers. Uh, maybe less obvious here is the natural deleveraging that takes place over time as principal is repaid um, in, in terms of the balance sheet strategy. Um, how do you guys think about as it relates to cash available liquidity and fleet renewal? Um, can you kind of talk about your capital return strategy as well as long-term value proposition in terms of fleet growth and reinvestment into the fleets? Uh, Tassos, let's start with you. Sure. Um, these are very valid questions. The industry our industry experienced a windfall of windfall of profits over the last um, uh, two or three years. Uh, so it, it is only right that some of these returns are returned to, the, to our shareholders. We at uh, Eurosys have instituted two ways to do that. We have um, started a dividend. We're paying uh, half a dollar a quarter, two dollars a year, which uh, at today's price amounts to about seven and a half percent. We have started this almost two years ago, uh, less than two years ago, and we feel that we have the financial strength to continue it uh, for the next uh, several years um, and even beyond. And at the same time, we have instituted a SERP repurchase program, which we are executing to the maximum allowed. We don't have much liquidity, so you know there are certain constraints on how much you can repurchase, how much stock, stock you can repurchase. And these are the two main ways of giving back uh, value to our shareholders. 
At the same time, we are balancing our cash allocation vis-a-vis -vis the new building program, the equity of which we have to fund. And also we have in mind to have cash available to take advantage of opportunities that might appear, especially as the market becomes uh, weaker and such opportunities, especially resales, uh, might appear. Either resales or, as it was discussed by my colleagues, certain projects having to do with older vessels could make sense under certain uh, conditions. But uh, primarily we're focused on making our company greener. That's why we did uh, our new building program. And our target is to return funds to our shareholders and at the same time keep a profile of fleet that becomes more efficient and uh, burdens the environment as, as, as low as possible. Thank you, Tassos. Constantine, uh, do you have a thoughts around that topic? Sure, absolutely. It's it's in 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 a capital intensive business like ship owning, it's it's the most important uh, question: the capital allocation, both for investors and and management. In in, in my view, next to obviously operational um, um, aspects. But we have you know we have put a very clear emphasis on returning capital to investors by the way of dividends. Um, we have paid out more than seven hundred thirty million U.S. dollars over the last less than twenty four months to investors. We have a quarterly dividend of 75% of adjusted net profit that we pay out on a quarterly basis. And uh, I mean, 2022, our dividend yield was 47%. This year to date, we're at 44% uh, and one quarterly dividend uh, still remaining. So th that speaks for itself in terms of our priorities. Having said that, we also operate, I would, I would argue on a, a very, very low leverage on an industry basis. Last uh, balance sheet date, we had a net debt position of 70 million US dollars versus 70 vessels. That means net debt of 1 million per vessel. Um, um, that means, you know, in terms of capital allocation priorities, we have clearly, you know, optimized the balance sheet, um, paid out a lot of dividend, will continue to pay out uh, uh, our dividend uh, according to our policy. Um, and we believe the next two years, it's about operating on a very low leverage because there will be a significant opportunities coming up. One needs to be very cautious and want to act. We will not rush into anything given the uncertainties ahead, but we are extremely well positioned given the very, very low leverage. Um, um, and at the same time, people can expect a solid dividend going forward. Um, that's kind of the, the, the dividend and uh, debt side of things. If you then look at a fleet renewal standpoint, we have at the same time also renewed our fleet. And we now have with retrofits and new build orders that we've placed, we have roughly one third of the fleet being either eco or new build, um, including uh, methanol dual fuel ships. So, so we are actually you know, placing our bets um, very cautiously on the basis of low leverage. But I personally think that, um, and there we, we might differ from some of the, the, the fellow panelists here. I personally believe you need to get some exposure to new technology in order to be a, a viable, uh, let's say, partner for your um, chartering uh, um, counterparts. And that's why we have actually opted to move ahead with some new technology investments on a project basis where the, uh, let's say, locked-in EBITDA is higher than the construction capex. So basically very limited risk for us, but going hand in glove with our chartering partners on that path. So fleet renewal, yes, very low leverage because the next two years will be choppy waters, but exciting in terms of opportunities and stick to our big dividend. Got it. Yeah, I want to give time to the fellow panelists here. Let's move to Evangelos. Thoughts around um, capital management 
and fleet renewal? Well, as with all things in life, um, same holds for capital allocation, it needs to be balanced. And we have tried, given that we've been through two or three very good years, as Tassos mentioned, we have tried very hard to balance our capital allocation strategy in the following, uh, with the following things in mind. We have delivered the company significantly. As I mentioned before, we're very close to net debt zero. Um, we, our uh, goal is to not go above two times net debt to EBITDA through the cycle. This obviously means that in the good part of the cycle, you'll be closer to zero. And then um, as, as you go to the uh, further down the cycle, this number may go up, but we will always manage our leverage uh, in order to have to, to, to minimize risks in our capital structure. So that's uh, one priority. Uh, paying a dividend, very important. We are paying out $3.2 per share, which is roughly 4.5-5% yield at this point. Uh, we have grown this number. We started out at $2 and we have gradually grown it over the past two or three years. The intention there is to keep on growing it steadily. And we, it's very important for us. It's a fixed dividend. It's not translated as a percentage of income or cash flow or whatever else. We want it to be sustainable and we want to be able to pay it uh, no matter what the market does. Uh, because that we want our investors to consider this as a core component of, of the return proposition we're offering. The other part, of course, being uh, growth of earnings and, and the dividend. Um, uh, at this point, and Constantine mentioned they're trading at whatever, north of 40% yield. Um, obviously, all of our stocks are undervalued. Anyway, you look at it. I, I said before, we are we have a two almost a two billion dollar EBITDA back contract backlog with zero net debt, and our market cap is one point three. Uh, so that that's you know that's very simple valuation math, nothing fancy with NAVs and asset values, pure simple cash flow math. Uh, and if you add on to that backlog the value of the ships, whatever value you may assign, you'll see a big disconnect between market cap and, and intrinsic value. And uh, anytime this happens, in our mind, every dollar spent on a buyback is much better used than paying it out as a dividend. Uh, so in conjunction with the dividend we're paying out, we've just concluded a $100 million buyback. The board authorized an extra 100, which we are now in the process of executing. And, and, and this is, the, you know, this is, again, uh, part of the return to shareholders uh, uh, strategy, which we believe it's very important given the, the discount that our stock is trading at. Um, at the same time, fleet renewal should always be in the agenda when you have aging vessels, right? And not only aging vessels in terms of uh, our, the, the average age of our fleet is some, roughly 14 years. We've seen vessels go up to 25 or 30 years in good markets. Uh, it's not just a, a function of renewal, it's also a function of improving your uh, carbon footprint, bringing on board new technologies. We're doing that. We're not overdoing it. Again, we're trying to strike a, a, an equilibrium, a balance. We've placed orders for methanol-ready container ships 
that uh, uh, you know we have the option to uh, to retrofit to run on methanol. Uh, so we're not paying a premium upfront, but we have the option to take advantage of this fuel going forward. And of course, uh, over the past decade, we have invested more than 100 million in retrofits, and we continue to invest in retrofits. And we we started investing in fuel efficiency modifications, if you will, uh, way before it became trendy as part of emissions discussions and, and, and all these things, because we wanted to have a, a, a competitive product offering to our customers. So um, I think that sums it up. Um, and uh, as a sort of side activity, uh, we've also invested in dry bulk. Uh, in what, it, and I mean opportunistically invested in dry bulk, uh, where we believe there is a lot of upside potential. At the end of the day, in shipping, you make you create outsized returns if you invest at the bottom. And we acquired certain vessels, which form a very small part of our overall asset base at very good prices. And uh, we believe we will be there to reap the benefits when, when the dry bulk market uh, comes back. Thank you, Evangelist. Let's, uh, I know we're running up on time here. I want to give Tom a chance to respond to that question. And then finally, since you brought it up, Evangelist, I'd love to talk a bit more about valuation of stock and investing into the in the segment today. So Tom, it, briefly, could you talk about capital allocation strategy and fleet renewal? Sure. I mean, as you say, um, or, or as one of the other panelists said, capital allocation, that's the ball game. That's what it's all about for us. So we try to be as thoughtful and dynamic as possible. We weigh up the risks, the opportunities, and the relative risk-adjusted returns. So we've sized our dividend, $1.50 per share, which is roughly 8% at today's stock price, um, to be sustainable through the cycle, through the ups and through the downs. Um, we delever um, fairly aggressively. All of our debt facilities have fixed amortization, which is designed to amortize the debt um, at a faster rate than the economic depreciation curve of the assets themselves. So we're building equity value um, over time by delevering. And then from a sort of a more dynamic perspective, it's weighing up um, share buybacks, which we have certainly done. Uh, we started with our share buybacks in, I think, the third quarter of 2021, and we have sustained buybacks since then um, on a quarterly basis. But um, as we move into the down cycle, and as Evangelos says, the way to make outsized returns in shipping is um, very much tied to investing at the right point in the cycle. So we made zero investments between, I think it was the second quarter of 2021 and the first quarter of 2023, because asset values were totally overheated. So instead of buying assets on an accretive basis, instead we were buying back shares to return capital to shareholders that way. Now, however, we're moving into a much more interesting phase of the cycle, the down cycle, where there are opportunities to be had. And we're lucky enough to have um, a forward contract cover, the, you know, the 2.1 years and 1.8 billion of forward contracted cover that provides a stable platform from which we can make selective acquisitions. And you asked about uh, returns from um, acquisitions. If we focus upon midlife and, midlife and older ships, which is what we see as our area of expertise and where we see the best return uh, potential and the lowest downside risk, we would expect to see levered returns from such acquisitions in the, uh, the high teens and low 20s. 
I'll, I'll hand the word back to you now. I hope that was concise enough. Yeah, great. Thank you, Tom, for that. Um, let's just stay on this topic and then we'll we'll move on to Q&A after this. Well, let's talk about valuation evangelists. Uh, there's an old joke. If you ask any shipping CFO or CEO uh, about their stock price, they'll always say that it's undervalued at any given point in time. So th that said, let, let's talk about valuation methodologies, how you, how you all think about valuation of your own shares. We know that a NAV-based approach is very popular across the shipping industry as a whole for several different reasons including the ability to maintain a valuation approach across different times of the cycle. Um, it's also popular because you can compare different shipping segments at, at any given time. But an NAV-based approach doesn't seem quite appropriate when looking at the container segment for a variety of reasons, including the charter revenue backlogs, as you brought up, Evangelos, multi-year chartering strategies that mitigate some of the extreme rate volatility and cyclicality seen in the other segments. What types of valuation methods um, do you think are most appropriate for the segment? And if, is this a multiple-based approach, a yield-based approach? How do you determine an appropriate numerical input at any given point in time in the cycle? Uh, let's start with uh, Tassos. Thanks, Chris. That's an interesting question. I think uh, NAV approach, as you said, is uh, has been uh, traditionally the first uh, method that ship owners tend to look at. Uh, I agree that might not be less appropriate, especially for containers in this type of an environment, especially with containers with charters. If if it was charter free, if it were charter free, it would have been straightforward to calculate the NAV and uh, get an assessment of the intrinsic value of a company. But if you have a charter that say expires in 18 months, you don't really know what market situation you will find when the charter expires and it's hard make uh, the, value, the, the analysis and it's it's hard to evaluate the value of the charter and sort of add it to the charter free value that you might be tempted to do. The way we do it in Eurosys, at least internally to present to our board is that we, especially for our older ships, uh, we calculate the contribution of the charter over the duration of the charter and then we assign, especially for the older ships, as I said, um, a very conservative value, perhaps close to scrap value, and call this the is the tangibly realizable value of that asset, and then use the NAV approach to to calculate the value for for of our stock potential value for our stock. Obviously, the younger vessels that have the new buildings that have longer life in front of them, then you can use more reliably uh, the more traditional approach of assessing residual value at the end of the charter. We have our first two new buildings have tremendously high charters compared to what they cost. They get repaid in three years. So there you can easily attach the historical average value, let's say, at the end of the charter and have the combined valuation uh, of the asset. But I think that sort of mixed approach, so to speak, that takes into account the early uh, charter contribution of the, especially on the older versions, and a very conservative residual value at the end uh, makes us feel comfortable when presenting internally and also when making decisions about when to issue new stock and at what price. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, mixed NAV type of approach. Uh, Constantine, what about you? I, I I would probably give, like to give it a slightly different spin because I think you know commodity shipping and and you, you refer to tankers and and bulkers versus container shipping, which is more part of a logistical chain, follows a different path. And particularly these days where we all have 
a significant backlog here, right? Every every company on this panel has a significant EBITDA or revenue backlog and still has a forward fleet in a way. Um, and, and that's where the mispricing always is a bit difficult. People tend to discount the backlog because they are not sure about the counterparties. I think we touched on that, that the counterparties have, have never been more solid than they are today. And secondly, you know, the forward value is usually only given a kind of a scrap value kind of um, um, valuation. That's at least the way, you know, things get valued. I think this is this is not the right approach. And I think for investors, there's a science part of it and there's a bit of a more uh, art part uh, to the valuation. Um, and the science bit relates obviously to financial analysis, market research, determining the fair market value, whether it's uh, NAV or whether it's DCF based. Um, and various other factors. But I think the the art bit, which is the more subjective judgment, and that's very important, is firstly the story behind the numbers and very importantly, the people. And with the people, I mean, and that's particularly relevant for shipping, the sponsors of a company, because most shipping companies have sponsors behind them and what is actually their interest and the management. Um, and, and thereby, I basically refer to also how do investors actually lift the value and, and gain from an investment that can either be by stock performance. Um, and that's a lot of that is momentum and sentiment driven, but it's also about how do I get my money back? Uh, and, and I think therefore a very clear capital allocation strategy is in my view, even more important than looking at it from an NAV or DCF standpoint. It's really understand the drivers of the people who take the decision about the capital and how do investors actually get back the money. And that should be weighed way more in evaluation than anything else in my view. Yeah, interesting. Good point. Uh, Tom, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I would certainly, in our case at least, set NAV to one side. For a start, it's very difficult to put a pin in, in charter-adjusted NAV. Um, but primarily, I would say, because we as a business are focusing upon forward visibility on cash flows as a leasing company, effectively, um, and uh, a sustainable dividend, I would suggest that valuing on the basis of those forward cash flows and dividend would be a more sensible uh, set of ingredients for evaluation than, than NAV, which I think is um, tends to be very misleading. And finally, Evangelos. Well, I, I think I touched upon the issue of valuation. Uh, NAV, in our case, is not, I believe, appropriate. Uh, although any way you value our companies, you will realize uh, we're all trading at deep discounts to NAV. And as Constantine said, it's market and sentiment driven most of the times. We're bundled up with other shipping sectors sometimes. Uh, and um, uh, you know people uh, do not pay necessarily the attention they should pay to the particular um, bright spots that, that we have as companies with the visibility that we have, the stability of income, sustainability of dividends that we're able to pay, and all these things. Um, and uh, so we, we are trying, and this webinar is part of that effort, to, to make investors aware uh, and, and uh, people that have a longer-term mindset I believe if they look closer to our balance sheets and our uh, our prospects, they will realize that they have a pretty decent investment proposition in front of them. Thank you for that. 
Before we dive into the Q&A session today, we have three poll questions for our audience, and your participation would be highly valuable for this discussion. So please take a moment to answer these questions. Once the polls are complete, we'll review the results together. And uh, let's get started on those questions now. You'll have about one minute to answer them before we open it up to Q&A. So, Lainey, will you open up the polling, please? Guys, while we're waiting for the polling questions to be answered, maybe we could just touch on a few topical things that are currently happening in the market. Um, I know effective supply was touched upon earlier. Um, we saw during the COVID boom some congestion issues at the ports, which was putting downward pressure on effective supply of vessels. And now we're seeing delays in the Panama Canal. Maybe that's impacting some other segments more than the container uh, industry. But does, con does congestion in the Panama Canal have any uh, idiosyncratic pressure on effective supply when it comes to uh, the container shipping segment? If I can answer that, I mean, uh, as you said, it has less than other segments. Uh, obviously, it does have because there's a, a backlog and a, and a line for of ships to get there. And at the same time, there is some operators, some liner companies are started have started making plans to uh, to avoid the canal. Um, it, it can be argued uh, from what I understand that uh, in some cases might have a mixed effect. Um, exports from, from Asia to the United States, East Coast, sometimes go around the, uh, the uh, South America, some other times land on the West Coast and then travel uh, inland on land to get to the East Coast. So it, it could have a mixed effect, but overall it has, to, to this point, a small effect uh, we'll have to wait and see how 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 more of an effect it, it could build up uh, as things develop. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, as, as as a general observation, Chris, I would say that anything that adds inefficiency to the supply chain, be it you know congestion at the Panama Canal, rerouting in some instances around Suez, anything of that nature is uh, paradoxically good news for us as tonnage providers, because for the lines to maintain the same frequency of service and carry the same volumes of cargo, if it's being done more inefficiently, they need more capacity in order to do so. And likewise, if you see um, the global fleet slowing down as a reaction to the um, emissions regulations that are kicking in, um, the turn of year, so CII on one hand, and I would say even more significantly, the EU emissions trading scheme on the other. Um, if you slow ships down, that's the same as taking effective capacity out. That's a point that um, that Constantine made earlier, I think, on, 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 on the panel. But um, again, to put data around that, if you slow the average speed of the global container ship fleet by just one knot, by one nautical mile per hour, that is the same as taking out 6% of, of effective capacity. So it's meaningful. And the, the, the reason that um, liner operators may slow down ships in the face of um, emissions regulations is that the relationship between fuel consumption and speed is pretty much logarithmic. That means that if you slow a ship down a little bit, you actually reduce emissions a lot. And given that in the case of EU ETS, emissions now mean dollars or euros, 
uh, roughly you know, 80 euros per ton of carbon dioxide emitted um, will have to be fed through to the ultimate customer via the liner operators. That means there is an incentive to reduce emissions. And the most efficient way to reduce emissions is to slow ships down, which takes out capacity, which is good news. Yeah, good good point, Thomas. Nicholas, why don't you join us now uh, so we, that we can review the polling questions and that you can read some of the Q&A from the audience. Great, uh, thank you uh, again and to all of you for uh, the great discussion. I will uh, direct some of the questions to you. Do you want to go through the uh, through the uh, the poll results, Chris, or do you want to do it? Yeah, if you don't mind reviewing those, Nicholas. Well, on the first question, what do you think that the energy transition landscape will look like? It seems that uh, the overwhelming response has been that all of the above uh, are part of the uh, of the approach. LNG, methanol, ammonia, and uh, I guess the um, the second uh, most uh, actually LNG seems to be uh, uh, the front runner. Then the second question is uh, what about the evaluation approach that uh, you take uh, when you analyze the container names? Again, it seems that we are kind of, I mean, 42% is uh, the free cash flow uh, yield based approach, uh, followed by the forward earnings multiple approach. And then number three is the NAV. Uh, no, number three is the dividend approach and uh, NAV is the, the last interesting uh very interesting result i mean uh, result uh the third question when looking at the container segment how concerned are you about the current order book and uh, it seems that uh, very interesting uh that uh, the the majority of the question is somewhat concerned uh so Obviously, there's concern, but I, it seems that the, the concern is uh, moderated. Yeah, maybe hope mitigated by some scrapping expectations and, and slow steaming and other factors that were mentioned during the webinar. Correct. Now, the questions that came through, and we have a lot of them, you have all touched upon them in uh, quite in detail. So I, I will simply mention the questions. I don't know if you, I mean, if you feel free to, to add more. One of the questions obviously had to do with uh, capital allocation and buybacks. I think you have all uh, replied quite uh, exhaustively on that topic. Uh, another question that uh, has not can you can reply to is about the ultra large container vessels. And there we have two questions. One is, um, you know, how big is that trend? And uh, for those vessels to navigate, do we need to do port expansion? And how likely is this to happen? And, and how soon? And then the next question is, uh, do you see a lot of the now containers, the ultra large containers to be transshipped? I think that's a question more for uh, constant, uh, you know, it was addressed primarily to Constantine. Um, so if you would like to uh, reply to what is the trend about uh, the ships carrying the ultra large containers and then how many of those are transshipped currently. 
Well, I'm 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 happy to to take that one. I mean, if I got it got it right, then also one part of the question was um, expansion of port calls and whether that will occur with regards to the very large container ships. I mean, there's obviously always two elements to it. One is is the port infrastructure ready to you know accommodate large ships? Um, and the second question uh, that one always has to ask is. Is it logistically and and from a pure port rotation and and schedule uh, uh, let's say integrity, the right thing to do for the liner operators? Because the very large ships, well, they, they might be able to go to certain ports, but it it, it doesn't make sense from a pure scheduling uh, standpoint. So so I think that is very important when looking at the ultra large container vessels and how they are deployed today tomorrow and thereafter and, and uh, i think the best example is 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 always if you look at the intra-regional trades by far the largest trade when it comes to um kind of number of vessels you have not seen a significant degree of cascading into those trades over the last 10 20 years although you had larger vessels right i mean 98 percent of those trades are being being done by vessels below 5000 tu um, so I think the, the answer to that is, of course, we will see cascading. Of course, we will see an expansion of port calls. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that, you know, that will, you know, shift out uh, smaller vessels and certainly not intra-regional trades and or feeding into the big hubs. So, yes, it is a trend that we see. You can see that from year to year that, you know, port rotation changes. Maybe there's one port being added. Um, Etc. But but I think it is a trend, but it's it, it is not a game changer to the overall kind of service offering of liner companies, and hence the the, the flexibility that is needed and required from smaller vessels. So so that's number one. And number two is in terms of transshipment of containers. Well, th that's what it's all about, right? I mean, you have the hubs, uh, you have the east-west routes, um, and you know. Um, feeders or intra-regional trades feed the hubs. Um, and that's part of the overall uh, scheme. And that is is, is a moving target uh, and, and kind of volumes move up and down, but it's not that there is a clear trend or game changer to that path either. So I know it's a bit of a more qualitative answer to that question, um, but I think uh, things are in motion. Um, uh, there is a clear requirement for flexible vessels because things change. Um, um, and the ultra-large vessels will continue to potentially add a, a few ports here and there, but it will not change the overall picture. Yeah, Chris, can I can I add to that? Um, I mean, I agree with everything that Konstantin's said, but I would also make the point that an ultra-large vessel only unlocks economies of scale if you can fill it. And you so so you have to consider not only the um, you know the port infrastructure. And, and the scheduling needs, but also the, the cargo flows. Um, it's not many trades upon which you can fill a 24,000 TU vessel on a regular basis. Um, so you size the vessel to the trade, both in terms of port infrastructure and also in terms of the, the cargo flows. So it's just like airlines. You wouldn't put a, you know, a giant Airbus 380 on the shuttle run between New York and, and Boston. It just wouldn't make any sense. You'd never fill it. And as a result, uh, you would never unlock the economies of scale. That's a great analogy. So another question coming up uh, has to do with the fleet renewal. Uh, you all talked about that. Uh, and the question is specifically focusing on scrapping. Uh, if you plan to scrap your uh, older vessels. You, you talked about that, but if anyone wants to add any comment. We will see 
scrapping, I believe, uh, in the coming quarters. Obviously, there are vessels that have been chartered uh, at very good rates and are still on those legacy charters. Uh, and we're seeing considerable pressure on, on smaller sizes that come up for charter renewal these days. And therefore, this will mean that people would not be incentivized to further invest in these older, smaller assets to keep them running. Uh, and actually, it was mentioned before, um, it's going to be a key driver to mitigate uh, the supply pressure that we have ahead of us from the deliveries of these uh, mega ships that will exert pressure even on the on the smaller sizes as a result of cascading, because we will have cascading happening. Evangelist, can you clarify what you mean by older ships? Is that pre-2005, pre-2010? What's the, the date you have in mind? We ourselves have 1997 built 2200 KU vessels uh, running at uh, rates above $20,000 a day. Uh, and those were booked. Uh, those charters were booked during the, the period of the pandemic. But if you want to charter a vessel like that, if it opens up and you want to fix it today, I don't think you will get more than eight or nine or 10,000 a day. Sure. So smaller sizes have are suffering more than bigger ships. With bigger, uh, as you go up the scale, uh, things look much better. We have renewed 10,000 TU container ships for three years at very good rates a month ago. Um, so size matters. And uh, I believe that all these vessels, as soon as they open up, 25, 26, 27 year old ships will have to head to the scrap yards. And that I, way... I would, sorry, Evangelist, go on. No, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say um, simply that, you know, asking about the age of, the sh of a ship in absolute terms is largely meaningless. What you really need to do is couch it in the context of the peer group. Because if you talk about, you know, a 10-year-old ship um, in the jumbo size, the 24,000 TU uh, segment. I don't think there are even any 10-year-old ships in that segment because they've all been built within the last, you know, five to eight years. However, if you talk about a 10-year-old ship in the context of, you know, the four to 5,000 TU segment, that's a young ship, you know. So very, very important to look at the age profile of the peer group. And then you can decide, A, you know, are you looking at a comparatively older ship versus the peer group and you also have to consider the specification of the ship so are you looking at a highly specified ship or um, which is maybe a little bit older but at the same time is more attractive from a commercial and operating basis than potentially a slightly younger ship with lower specifications so I'm, I'm afraid there aren't any you know broad brush answers here everything has to be set within the peer group and within context Sorry, Evangelos, for uh, for interrupting there. No, Evangelos is right in, in pointing out that the ships of certain vintage they would face more severely the the question, I stay or I go when the current charters expire. I think uh, a ten year old ship, obviously whether it's the oldest of its is of, of its peer group or the youngest, still has a ship that. You, you expect it to live another 10, 15 years. A 25-year-old ship, whether it's in good market or bad market, you would, you would be nearing the decision to stay or go. 
especially now that we ha it has to face the environmental uh, uh, requirements uh, and the required investment. I mean, as, we face the same situation with the vacuums and the same, the, exactly the same thinking. Older ships and could be as young as 20 year olds. I mean, if you cannot charter them and you're required to invest, they would be pr primary candidates for scrapping when the current charters expire. Yes, I, I think that's right. And that, that becomes the sort of the crystallizing moment, you know, as, as our um, listeners may or may not know, every time uh, a, a ship has to pass through every five years, typically, a, a regulatory survey and dry docking. And depending upon the size of the ship, that five-year dry docking is going to cost money. Now, maybe it's a couple of million US for a mid-sized ship. So that becomes uh, a moment of truth, let's say, for the owner, be that owner a liner operator or um, a lessor such as us, does it make sense to invest money in that ship in order to keep her running for another five years? Or does it make more sense to, you know, delete her? So I, I agree with you, um, Tassos. The, these are decisions that everyone is going to be making on the basis of what they see as the forward earning potential of their assets and whether or not there's going to be a return on invested capex and keeping a particular vessel running. The decision for higher spec vessels will be one. The decision for lower spec vessels will be another, potentially. So we are uh, having uh, exceeded our, our time, uh, indicating indicative actually of the interest uh, of our uh, participants in the sector. We have a lot of questions still unanswered, but if you don't mind, I will close with two. Uh, the first one is you all talked about it but I will ask it again because I think it's worth uh, highlighting it about the credit, about the quality of your counterparties. Uh, I think you have all been quite um, clear on that. I don't know if anyone would like to add anything. I think the majority of our clients are major liner companies. As it was said uh, repeatedly, uh, they made more money than us over the last three years. So their coffers should be quite filled. Uh, and I think also discussed the contract is a contract and uh, there is no reason to break it, no basis to break it, um, especially if you are not in a hardship. Uh, so we feel generally, talking for Euros, is comfortable, very comfortable with our counterparties. And in cases that there are constructive discussions that uh, are to mutual benefit, we will undertake them. And there was a case, we had two ships charter to... A uh, liner company that uh, they wanted to release, and they asked us to release them. And in fact, we were able to charter them at above the the current the, the charter rates that they were chartered. Uh, and that was a, a situation solved to our mutual benefit. Things like, but that was on a voluntary basis. Um, so things like that could happen, but generally we feel very comfortable with the quality of our counterparties, not only for us, but I think broadly the industry is in a pretty good shape. And then the last one, which I think also Tom uh, Thomas gave uh, a fairly detailed reply had to do with Panama Canal, with um, the uh, slow steaming and at what point of time uh, you might start uh, passing on the increased cost to your customers. I don't know if anybody would like to add more to that. 
Sorry, cost... I, I, I don't understand the question, uh, Nicholas, because th there isn't any increased cost, at least for us as owners, in um, uh, having to go or, or see a vessel rerouted around uh, Panama. That's a cost that is borne by the charterer because it's the charterer who pays the fuel. For, for us, it's, it's cost neutral, but it actually generates additional demand for additional capacity because it's an inefficiency. Sorry, Tassos, were you about to say no, something similar? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the, the costs eventually will be borne by society. They will be passed down to all of us as consumers. But as, as owners, you're, you're absolutely right. We don't directly face increased costs, but rather we face more demand. So that's a great reply, actually. And uh, I'm glad that I asked the question because it uh, helps change the perception. Uh, so great. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, we have exceeded our time. Uh, I would like to thank you all. Uh, Chris, I'd like to thank you, first of all, for being a great moderator and for putting the questions together. Uh, Constantine, Thomas, Tassos, and Evangelos, uh, thank you very, very much for joining. This has been a particularly uh, informative webinar, as all of our webinars are, um, very timely. And uh, thank you to all very much. Nico, thank you very much for organizing it. Thank you. Take care, Happy everyone. Happy holiday season to everyone. Likewise. For me as well. Take care. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.